and uh, I saw the wind had picked up a bit more, but once again, it was not something I wasn't comfortable flying in. Flying in. Uh, but just a few seconds after after takeoff, my uh, half of my wing collapsed, uh, so it was really bumpy. Um, the wing uh, got back up, and I flew a couple more seconds, but then my whole wing collapsed, and I I fell 30, 40 meters to the ground. In a life of adventure, you're going to have some injuries. Some will be minor scrapes, and hopefully you'll avoid the life-changing ones. But in doing difficult things, life-changing injuries really are a possibility. How do you cope with the initial injury? How do you adapt your life on the other side? And how do you maintain your identity when you have injuries such as these? These are all questions today's guest, Bernd Marius Rorstad, provides an illuminating answer to. After a speed riding accident where he fell 30 to 40 meters to the ground, Bernd Marius had his right foot amputated and has been adapting to his life with a prosthetic ever since. Despite this, he is still an adventurer and a mountain sports enthusiast. He still shreds on skis, climbs mountains, and just as impressively maintains an outlook on life that is really admirable. Today on this episode of The Freedom Project with Bernd Maris Rostad, we cover the camaraderie of being in the mountains, the event that led up to Bernd Maris's crash and what he learned from it, finding gratitude in the things you'd rather not have happened, managing risk and danger, finding the opportunities within terribly difficult circumstances, and how the psychological path of the challenge is always harder than the physical component and how to master that psychological challenge and much more besides. Today's episode was truly one of those where I saw an impressive philosophy applied practically. In Stoicism, there's something called a preferred indifference. Of course, Bernd Marius would much rather have not had his foot amputated, so he'd prefer it to be different. However, he seems to have expressed a kind of indifference to it since. He's getting on with his life in a way that is um, not dismissive of the challenge that he faced, um, but accepting. And it's this lesson of acceptance that I think comes through time and time again that we can apply to our own life in whatever um, tragedies befall us, whether they're minor or major. And what I find particularly impressive in this episode too is the fact that Bernd Maris isn't this disgustingly positive, overly positive kind of false person for his challenge, but he also isn't negative and depressed. He's just very matter of fact, which I think is something as a high performance coach and a mindset coach, something that I see is a huge advantage to him and something hugely admirable and something we can apply to our own life. Anyway, here is Bernd Marius Rostad. Firstly, dude, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to be to be chatting with you. Thank you, thank you. Pleasure to be here. So as you'll know from our pre-show chat, I know very little about where you're growing up and the the kind of what it's like for you when you're growing up. So describe the describe the scene, tell the audience where you grew up, um, what that is like, the kind of environment. Yeah, I uh, grew up in Volda. It's a small town um, uh, in the, in the middle of Sundmøre Alps at the west coast in uh, in Norway. So the mountains are really close, uh, and I started skiing in when I was like two years old, 
And I just kept it going with uh, all sorts of uh, activities like football, handball. I've been um, I've been trying most the most of the activities the the town had to offer. Um, it's a really good place to uh, to grow up, uh, safe uh, environment, and um, and um, like everybody in uh, in Volda almost are into into sports. So I fell right into the into the sport community there. Is it a very active community? Are people like in the mountains? Are people out doing things, or is it more I don't know traditional sports? Um, both. Uh, football is uh, big in uh, in Volda, um, mm-hmm. but uh, the uh, the people there also loves to use the mountains for all sorts of of activities, just like hiking or skiing, mountain biking, climbing. Uh, you can do it all. You have you have easy mountains and you have uh, kind of hardcore mountains. So um, there are mountains for. For everyone and uh, everyone's level of, of um, yeah, 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 abilities and capacity. Yeah, what sure. like what was your first experience of the mountains where you thought this is something that I'm really interested in? Like, was it always there from childhood, or was it something that's like picked up your interest later? Uh, my father used to uh, bring me with his. Um, with his mates on the, on the ski trips in the mountains. And uh, they, they told stories of when they were younger, they skied uh, yeah, kind of hardcore stuff. And I would find myself looking at the lines and thinking, I want to do that someday. So it started there with my father bringing me uh, on ski trips with, uh, with his, uh, his mates. So nice. uh, what was your, like talking about your dad, what kind of, adventures did he get up to what kind of skiing was he doing uh he started uh telemark skiing um that was his thing and then um he um he um, started uh, with uh, randonne mm-hmm. and, uh, so uh, i used cross-country skis and he had my uh, alpine skis on, uh, on the backpack and i changed to alpine skis at the top and skied with hey that uh, sounds great yeah so <laughs> It's uh, thanks to him I have the mountain joy, the joy uh, of being in the mountains, I guess. Yeah. What did your dad teach you? Like, what memories stand out when you were out in the mountains with him? Oh, good questions. I guess just uh, the camaraderie, uh, the social, uh, the sh- social aspect of being in the mountains, uh, and to have fun. It was like. Uh, a free space uh, to um, to uh, oh um, uh, I, I can't find the words, but uh, yeah, the social uh, the social aspect of it all uh, that you go out with your mates and um, and get some time off from the rest of uh, of your everyday everyday life. Mm-hmm. Nice is. Was it him that is as calm and as um, centered as you are? Because when I'm speaking to you, like I get this really kind of like stability and um, yes, a sense of calm. Was, was, does that come from him or is that somewhere else? Yeah, he's really calm. 
but I don't think <laughs> I don't think uh, people around me would describe me as calm. Uh, <laughs> and um, why is that? When I was younger, you know, I was uh, I had a lot of energy. Um, so I I I always had to do something. I just couldn't sit still on on the couch. Uh, I really enjoy being out outdoors. Um, and uh, I push limits without thinking that much of uh, consequences. Um, and the faster I could go, the better. And uh, yeah, I, li- I really like to push the boundaries of uh, of uh, what I was able to uh, able to manage. And um, but I, I always kept it on the right side of it. So. Uh, I guess I had some thoughts of consequence. Uh, I just, yeah, it uh, always went well. So, but uh, as I grew older, I guess, after, especially after my uh, my accident, I've, I've uh, thought a lot of more of uh, of consequence. Um, and uh, yeah, like what examples did you have? Like who who were you looking up to in terms of? maybe mountain sports or adventure sports like what we what are your examples there i think i looked up to uh to um, my father's uh my father uh, father's friends uh what they have done and the way they the way they acted in the mountains they were although they like skied um uh, much harder things than I was able to do. They were still very calm, uh, and um, and they talked about it uh, as a thing that you have to you have to build up abilities before you can before you can go out and ski those kind of lines. It's just it's how did they teach you that? You no, they, it's the, just the way they talked about it. Like it's ah, oh, I want to go there. And they was they were looking at me and. Uh, we have to ski uh, easier things first. You just you can't just go up there and ski it. You have to prove yourself beforehand. So we didn't talk about it like directly, but the way they acted uh, just told me that uh, I'm not there yet. So it's yeah. kind what of... kind of stuff were they skiing? Were they skiing like big gnarly? You said there were two types of mountains around you: the big kind of um, more aggressive lines and the more kind of um, I don't know. Um, intense stuff and then there's kind of more friendly mountains around you what, what stuff were they doing yeah but when i was like 10 12 13 years the stuff they were talking about sounded kind of extreme uh but when i'm 25 26 years old and look at it <laughs> it's <laughs> it's not that extreme for uh, extreme but um yeah um it was when you had like tiny skinny skis though <laughs> yeah they, the they had like two Two ten long skis with no carb and yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was back in the days, the nineties. So I never, I never saw them uh, ski uh, that kind of stuff personally. But uh, they always uh, they spoke about it. Not they, they didn't speak about it to me. But when I asked them, because I, I, I asked and asked and asked about have, have you skied that one? Have you skied that one? Have you skied that one? They told about it. Told me about uh, told me about what um, I did it what was attractive to you about the mountains was it or about that style of skiing was it like was it the speed was it the excitement going somewhere new like what was what was really interesting for you yeah i, I guess just doing stuff that 
few people do and uh the speed and uh, the exposure i guess in some aware way and um yeah we were talking about uh, calmness and in some ways i'm i like this uh, i think i'm kind of calm uh, but in other ways i really need um excitement in my everyday to to be happy uh mm-hmm. so I don't think I'm like this atypical, uh, like the stereotype adrenaline addict. Like <laughs> I'm rarely there, um, but in some way I need, I need the, um, I need to challenge myself to, um, to to be happy. Yeah, yeah, I completely hear. You. There's that element of. I'm not even, it might be danger or maybe like the risk factor. It feels like I, I need something like that in order to feel alive and to feel like centered. Yeah. Um, is that risk factor and the danger? And when I, when I do things and uh, I get a really, really big adrenaline um, rush, I don't like it. I hate it. It's like the worst feeling ever when I get these huge adrenaline rushes because that means I've done something uh, with too small a margin of what I'm what I'm comfortable with. So it's it's been too close to the limit, um, and I don't like it. So an adrenaline, a really big adrenaline rush for me is is a bad sign. It means I've pushed it too far. Um, That's really so, interesting. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so it, I think it's more, it's more the uh, the sense of uh, accomplishment uh, that I'm searching, uh, and then adrenaline comes as a part of it. Like if you ski a new line, uh, you've been working really hard to do, and you manage to do it uh, close to perfect, uh, you feel uh, you feel a sort of uh, accomplishment. Um, and with that comes adrenaline and therefore you enjoy it. But if you ski it and you come down and you're like sick inside because the adrenaline is, level is too high, it just means that I'm, I've, uh, I pushed it too far. Uh, it's, I'm okay. It, I didn't crash or anything, but it was too close, too close to a crash or too close to an accident. Um, nice. so uh, I suppose that's what your, your father and his friends were talking about with you of you've, you're not ready yet. You've got to build the skill set in order to get there. Yeah. I think it was like they were, they saw and they felt like I was, I was pushing, I was young and I didn't think of the consequences that so they were trying to, trying to hold me back as good as they, uh, they could. Um, yeah. So I'm going to try some, um, some very bad Norwegian pronunciation coming up. Okay. <laughs> you, you ready for it? Um, what is, is it Voss Folkehøgskole? Yeah. Voss Folkehøgskole. Okay. Talk so, to me about that. Yeah. So, uh, I don't think there's an English word for it. Um, it's like after high school, uh, in Norway, you can go to, uh, Folke. Högskola. So it's a year of uh, activities and and uh, socializing. <clears throat> um, so you can choose between different schools and uh, different activities. So uh, I chose um, extreme sport air 
if you if you translate it directly, that is uh, speed riding, paragliding, skydiving, and uh, wind tunnel uh, and free skiing. So uh, nice. I started there in 2017. And that's what. So you you finish high school, and then yeah. there's a year essentially set aside to say, um, to kind of go and explore and do things that you what that you're interested in yeah so it's called school but uh, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's more a school of uh, becoming a more grown-up person and uh, yeah to learn to live with other people and uh, to be in a group and um, is that something that's paid for by the government uh no you uh, it's, the government uh pays a part of it but okay. uh through uh, loans and um a small scholarship if you can call it that mm-hmm. uh, but you have to pay uh, most of it uh, yourself yeah okay so you kind of turn up there and what just do cool shit with different people learn to live with interesting people is it like a boarding school type experience yeah kind of i guess yeah so everybody lives together uh, in dorms so you have uh, yeah two and two or you got a single room if you pay some extra and you eat all meals together and uh, you're responsible of keeping your la clean and um uh, and you have teachers to show you and learn you the uh, uh, the activities you chose to chose to join. Um, so uh, yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, it is, it is amazing. I, I grew uh, up in the wrong place. I don't, I don't. I haven't heard of any other countries that has uh, has the same uh, has the same schools. So it's uh, no, it's definitely really not nice. the same thing. Yeah. So you learned to. I'm guessing you already had some experience. Um, ski touring well you did have experience ski touring at that time um but speed riding was that brand new to you at the time yeah all the air sports was uh, brand new to me so I've, i always thought that uh thought uh, always i always wanted to skydive to try a skydive um so that's why i chose to join that um that school because uh, uh but all like speed riding and paragliding was uh, all new to me so, What's uh, the progression they teach you? Like, how are they teaching you that? Is it like you have a, a group of how many people and you'll go out once, or is it one to one tuition? Uh, we were, I think, we were fifteen or eighteen in our class, um, and then they it's a group lesson, and uh, you get uh, individual uh, uh, feedback and um, from the instructors. So uh, you take a course in all the activities and you get a, uh, get a license at the end of the year. If you, if you put, uh, put enough time into it on your spare time. Um, so I got the license in, in skydiving. No, I got it in speed riding, but I, uh, I had to do two more skydives to get the license when the school year was over. Mm-hmm. And what was it like learning those sports all at the same time it was uh, really really exciting so we started skydiving and paragliding uh, uh, in the autumn um, 
So to jump out of a plane the first time was <laughs> truly amazing experience. Um, it's one of the best experience, uh, experiences I've had in my life. Uh, and the paragliding was, uh, was uh, really nice as well. So, uh, we used the whole autumn to like get, get into it. And, um, I think I had like 10, 12 jumps that autumn before uh, the ski season started. And when the ski season started, we put away skydiving and paragliding and started with free skiing and speed riding. Nice. And what stuff are they teaching you in free skiing? Like, yeah, tell me, tell me about that. Like what's the progression like? Uh, yeah, the free skiing part was mainly just fun to be out together and ski and have fun. And, uh, you got some technical, um, um, yeah, technical tips, how to, uh, how to be, uh, be a better skier. But yeah, it was most, mostly being out, having fun together. Uh, nice. And it's a bit up to yourself to push. So if you, if you wanted, if you wanted feedback, you, you had to ask. Yeah. Nice. That sounds incredible. And then when do they, when did you get introduced to a canopy on skis? Like when, when did that happen? Yeah, it was in November, uh, in 2017. So at the first snowfall, we went out, um, um, out in the mountain with the snowmobile uh, and we started uh, flying these really small hills. So we were in the air like one meter above or uh, really easy, easy hills. So, uh, and then the progression started and we went from really easy hills to, to a real flight, but it was like, yeah, it was a progression there. So, yeah. Yeah. So explain to me like what it's like speed riding. Cause I've skied a lot and I've net, well, aside from a couple of tandem skydives, I've never really been under a canopy. So like, what's, what's the experience like? It's really nice. It's, it's hard to explain uh, the feeling to somebody who hasn't flown, but it's a sense of freedom, I guess. Um, and you're really concentrated and focused. So it's, um, for me, it's, um, it's a time off because you're so focused and so into it that you forget everything else. So uh, that's, I think that's why I liked it so much, the freedom and uh, um, the sense of being in, uh, in one with nature. Yeah. And what did you want to do with speed riding? Was it something that was something that you could see yourself doing for a long time? something you could see yourself really getting into or was it something you were kind of doing just because it was slightly interesting no i was really obsessed with it so uh, i think it was the same as uh, skiing and seeing the mountains and hearing about these big lines you always want to progress so i wanted to fly different mountains more um hard accessible mountains and cooler cooler lines so I always wanted to progress and to um, to take it further. Yeah, I saw myself doing it uh, for the rest of my life. I guess. Yeah. Okay, 
And what does progression in speed riding look like? Is it, yeah, like, talk to me about that. Yeah, the progression is uh, normally that you uh, downsize your uh, your wings. So you use smaller and smaller wings that goes faster and faster. Uh, and the more dangerous it gets, obviously. Um, and to fly more technical lines, uh, steeper lines, uh, flatter lines, um, yeah. To to become a to become a better to be uh, to become a better speed rider, I guess like yeah. the accomplishment. And how many again. how many times did you speed ride before your crash? Uh, I think I had a uh, hundred and forty uh, flights wow. or something. Yeah, yeah from wow. that's uh, a huge no- from November to uh, to uh, May. Yeah, man, that's um, that is a huge, huge amount. What? So you you're riding for 140 odd flights. You saw a huge amount of progression. Um, talk to me about the morning of the crash. Yeah, so uh, the 13th of May 2018, uh, the school year was over, so I uh, drove home to Volda. Uh, and the 15th of May, I was waking up. It was a really nice day. It was all sunny, uh, no clouds, no wind, perfect morning. Uh, but I was I was sick or I didn't feel well. Uh, but I had a, a mate in, um, in Luan at the Skylift there who was flying that day. Um, and it was too nice a day to to sit inside. So I decided to, decided to go. Uh, so I dro- drove to, uh, drove to Luan and, uh, and took a flight with my, uh, with my mate. And it was, the conditions was really, really nice. It was like no wind and no turbulence, perfect conditions. Um, and then we did a second flight. Uh, the conditions was, the wind was picking, uh, picking up, but, it wasn't it wasn't bad at all uh the third flight it was getting a bit um uh bumpy uh, the conditions were yeah uh there were a bit of turbulence but not something i didn't i hadn't flown in before so i felt still felt kind of comfortable and after the third flight my mate was going to work um so I was thinking of going home myself, but I ended up doing one last one last flight. And what happened? Uh, I got to the exit point, uh, and uh, I saw the wind had picked up a bit more. But once again, it was not something I wasn't comfortable flying in, flying in. Uh, but just a few seconds after after takeoff, my uh, half of my wing collapsed, uh, so it was really bumpy. Um, the wing uh, got back up, and I flew a couple more seconds, but then my whole wing collapsed, and I I fell thirty forty meters to the ground, uh, and um, crushed both my ankles. 
So uh, I had uh, white tennis socks uh, and uh, my bones was uh, my bones was sticking out of the socks uh, and my legs were all jelly. Um, I couldn't I couldn't move them. I couldn't lift them. I couldn't do anything. Um, I was still attached to my wing. So uh, uh, the wind started dragging me uh, towards the cliff. So I had to disconnect my wing uh, or, or uh, my wing would have dragged me to the cliff and I would probably die. I managed to uh, detach it. Um, and then I tried to call to call the ambulance um, but the the pain and the disbelief and the adrenaline I was I didn't think I was able to do it I can't remember exactly but two people that uh, saw saw the takeoff they they came running down to me and helped me luckily Yvonne and Patrick so I owe them. I owe them a lot because they came down to down to help me. Yeah. What was so? I'm guessing you ran rang the ambulance, or Yvonne and Patrick ran, ran the ambulance. What's going through your mind in the time between the call and then help arriving? Uh, yeah, uh, they were trying to calm me down. Uh, she's a nurse and, but I can, I can see in her eyes and I could, uh, hear it in her voice that this was, this was really serious. So I, I knew that this was bad and the pain was so strong. I had no, um, I had no painkillers for half an hour. I was just lying there screaming, uh, and I didn't faint. So I was, um, uh, I was in the situation the whole time. Um, so, uh, I can't remember, I could remember all, uh, just like right after days after and everything, but now, um, I can't remember it in, uh, I can't remember all of it, but, uh, I guess just screaming and disbelief and yeah, just agony. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God the mind kind of blanks that out yeah. and <laughs> finds a way around it. So I'm guessing you then kind of start remembering things from being in hospital. Yeah, I got some crazy drugs in the plane, uh, no, in the helicopter. Uh, that's the last thing I can remember before I woke up uh, in the, in the hospital yeah. the day after, I think. Yeah. So I've been in surgery and, for many hours. And at that point, what were the surgeons attempting to do? So, yeah, I crushed both my ankles. Um, so uh, they stitched up the, the left one uh, and they tried to save the right one. So that it was full of dirt and a lot of bone missing and, uh, and everything. So they tried to clean it up as good as they can. Uh, good. And then um, I went through, I think, three or four surgeries on my right ankle to try to save it. Um, and the first thing they said to me after the first sur surgery when I woke up was that they managed to save my left one, but 
they wasn't sure they uh, they could save the right one. Uh, and I thought, what the fuck? Of course you can save the right one because I can move my toes and uh, I can move my ankle. So this is going to be fine. That was my first first thought, yeah. And if this is um, too sensitive, we can always take this out. We can like we can avoid it and we can skip over. Um, what was the process of finding out that you're going to um, have your have your foot amputated? Um, yeah. So as I said, I went through like three or four surgeries uh, to try to save it. Um, so I knew uh, the whole time that uh, they they did everything they could to try and save it. So when he told me uh, um, the sur- uh, the sur- surgeon is that the right word mm-hmm. um, that he had to amputate me, uh, it was okay because I knew that they 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 did all they could. So. Um, yeah, the the way they showed it, like by by using fourteen days and three or four surgeries, uh, that was that was really important for me and for my my recovery. That I I haven't I haven't been bitter on on him one second my whole the five years since because I have a really nice relationship with him. I. I can call him and uh, he can call me and we have a chat and um, I haven't been bitter one second. And that's because he used those 14 days and three, four surgeries to show me that he really, really tried. Uh, And I, Mm. I uh, took uh, up my courage to ask him, I think it was this spring or something. If he, if he knew the first time that he had to amputate me and he said, yeah, by 99% he knew that he had to amputate me. But still, he went through all those surgeries to just to show me that we have been trying. Um, so that's been really, really important for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's an amazing, compassionate thing to do, to, to really um, explore every avenue and to attempt everything. That must have done a huge amount for you. It truly did. And, um, it's so important to, in the recovery, not to be bitter and to be able to look forward. Cause if I had woken up, uh, after the accident and my foot was gone, I would have been like really bitter, I guess. And then I will haven't, hadn't been able to recover as well as I did because I will always find excuses and look back and blame everybody else, not myself. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that was, a key, a key for me. Just a quick favor to ask. If you love the show and you think it may help someone else in the world, then head to wherever you listen to The Freedom Project and leave a five-star review and maybe even share it with some friends. It really does help me and it helps the show too. I can continue to get fantastic guests on the show. It reaches more people and it makes me feel great too. So I would be enormously grateful if you could leave a five-star review and share any episodes of the podcast that you love. I'm sure the there have been so many challenges since that moment how have you 
what have you learned about yourself and what have you learned about your mind in that time? Uh, yeah, I've learned so much about myself. Uh, like the physical aspect of it all is really, really easy. It's just, it's just to train. It's so easy. Just, it's, it's just training. And if you train, you can, you can almost be, uh, become as good as you want. So that's not a problem. Uh, the problem is, uh, yeah, the psychological aspect of it all. And, uh, you have, you have, it's not just a physical part of learning to walk again and learning to live your life with a prosthesis. It's, it's everything else, uh, your daily life and, uh, education and, uh, girlfriends and friends and everything. Cause uh, the glass is like kind of full after a, an accident like that. Uh, and um, what I've experienced is that others' small problems that were small before now gets kind of big. Uh, so my tolerance is slower than before uh, when it comes to to uh, normal problems that everybody else has. So I've had very few problems with like the part uh, that comes to my prosthesis and my amputation, I rarely think of it. It's just the way it is. I come, I got closure on that. So that's not a problem, but uh, like normal stuff that everybody else goes through now is a bigger challenge for me than it was before. Like what kind of stuff? No, just, uh, uh, normal stuff. Uh, uh, if you had like troubles with friends or trouble with girlfriends or uh, troubles in general, all troubles gets a, just a bit bigger than they were before because the glass is already full, if that makes mm. sense. So it takes less to uh, to whip me off. Okay, because there's always. And let me let me know if I'm getting this wrong because I'm I'm trying to understand the best I can. So it's almost like because there's so much to deal with, and because there's you're working at something already, and the overcoming the challenges associated with that psychologically and physically, that there's less capacity to deal with stuff on top of that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so. Uh, if you have a glass, like I'm showing you on the video now, mm -hmm. if you if you mm -hmm. think of uh, the water in it as um, uh, as the amputation and the accident, so it's kind of full already. So, mm -hmm. uh, but the the problems that gets uh, the water to run over is the problem that feels like the big problem. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. So, uh, if you have a if you have a small argument with your friends, that's not the problem. The amputation is a problem, but the small argument with your friend feels like the problem. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like you're, you're, you have a effectively smaller capacity to deal with those things because you're already dealing with so much to, to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think I understand where you're coming from. Is there anything that you are, I want to get my words right here because I don't want to like make it seem like, cliche and and not sincere with this but like is there anything that you are 
that you wouldn't have learned without the accident? Yeah, so the cliches are a cliche for a reason. So mm. uh, when one door closes, another one opens. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess uh, how to when you're at the hospital and you're in a situation uh, that I was in, everything starts to be about you. So when you meet people, everyone asks you how you're doing. So everything is about you. Um, and uh, to see that so many people uh, showed up and supported me, uh, you truly saw who was your friends and uh, who was uh, who was not. And uh, uh, I guess I saw how important it is to support people when they have a have tough times and uh, not just when it's obvious to everybody that you have a tough time, but in the time after when, when your life uh, goes on, they're still in the shithole, right? So to re- try to remember that like four, four or five months after to that uh, it might be difficult for them. And it's especially difficult if all the, all the people around you have moved on in their lives and like kind of forget that you still, still have trouble. To see that, I guess that's the most important lesson for me. Um, to, mm. uh, is is that psychologically the hardest part in the journey? Then, like four, five months in, when it's not new anymore. Uh, not for me, because I was so prepared for it. Uh, I knew it the whole way that uh, it was going to be that way. So for me, that wasn't the problem, and I had so much. Um, I felt so much mastery uh, the first the first year, so uh, <laughs> I never got to feel bad about it because uh, I just got better and better and better and better. And uh, yeah, of course there were there were hard days and there were things that was tough, but all in all, it just it went one way and that was uh, upwards um, mm-hmm. and forward. So. Uh, for me, that wasn't an issue because I was, yeah, as I said, so so prepared for it. Mm-hmm. I knew it was gonna. So did you uh, did you approach things like walking again and everything that went to, along with having a prosthesis? Did you did you approach that with almost having like a like a new skill to learn, like you're learning to ski again, or like you're learning to speed ride again, like that kind of progression? Yeah, because uh, I had to learn everything. Uh, again, I couldn't walk. I couldn't. I couldn't almost do anything. So the hardest part was to walk again because you've done it your whole life. It's so fucking easy. It's just put one fr- uh, leg in front of the other. Mm-hmm. But I lost almost twenty kilos, wow. uh, and I was so skinny. You can you can you can uh, get your uh, fingers to meet around my leg. Um, so. The mind uh, knew what was going to happen. You just put uh, one leg in front of the other, but the body wouldn't listen. And that was really, really frustrating. And uh, I had so much pain in my left ankle and in my um, amputation limb. Uh, And then I was like, oh, yeah, that was a tough day for me. And uh, uh, yeah, 
probably the worst day in my whole recovery was the day I walked again for the first time uh, with my prosthesis because uh, yeah, there was so much pain. It was so hard, and I yeah, it was much tougher than I th- thought it would be. Um, mm. Yeah, how do you keep yourself going during experiences like that? You have no choice. <laughs> it's as easy as that. The choice is to to give up or just keep on going. Uh, and I really wanted to get back to my life. I wanted to get back to my friends. I wanted to get back to skiing. I just want to be a normal kid again uh, that went down to the mountains and uh, had fun and uh, got invited to social stuff, got invited to mountain trips. Just just be myself again. Uh, and mm-hmm. to not be the thought of not being myself again was so 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 scary that i had no other choice than just keep pushing on yeah because i i was doing so much thinking about you and your situation when i was preparing this and one of the things that i tried to do is just imagine what it'd be like to be in a similar accident and kind of in the back of my mind when i've been through um when i've been out in the mountains or um, doing something that has risk associated with it. There's been something in the back of my mind that's um, made me think, oh, if I get injured, this could happen. Or if I get an avalanche, this could happen. Like it's kind of been there, but I've never actually, until preparing for this podcast, I've never really kind of sat down and intentionally imagined what it would be like for an extended period of time. And I think one of the things that, I found most um, potentially difficult to deal with was so much of my identity is wrapped up in the type of activities I do and the way I see myself, but also the way other people know me as well. And I think the identity piece was something that I um, imagine finding most difficult in that. Is that how it played out for you or is is that something that's completely irrelevant for you? No, I guess I I never thought of it that way. But my mom always said that that's that's the reason, I guess. And it probably is because I've always been a kid associated with sports and activities and mountains and uh, and not to not be that that person anymore. That that frightens me way more than the pain of going through rehabilitation. Mm. Yeah. So uh, I I want to live a life uh, where I'm in control and I can do whatever I want, uh, mm. not being held back by, uh, by my body or being held back by just not putting in enough work. Um, yeah. Is that what encouraged you to get you get back into um, adventure sports, extreme sports? Is like what was that? Yeah, is is that the kind of thing that was encouraging you to get back into these kind of sports? Yeah, hundred uh, uh, percent. But the most important thing for me was to get back to uh, life with my with my mates and uh, my family and uh, just feel normal again, not just being hospitalized and everybody wondering if you're okay. And 
mm-hmm. seeing you as this poorly uh, sick dude that uh, isn't uh, able to do anything, just sitting in his wheelchair, uh, fading away. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was the most important thing. And um, <laughs> I was all, also really afraid of uh, how it would be to get a girlfriend again. That was mm-hmm. uh, my... <laughs> My main issue, uh, my, um, so, um, uh, that was a big motivation as well, uh, to be myself again. Yeah. So my, yeah, I can um, imagine how old were you at the, at the time again? Remind I was me. 21. Okay. So when you're uh, hospitalized for amputation in Bergen, you get a visit from an, um, orthopedic engineer and, uh, my, uh, my orthopedic engineer was amputated himself when he was 20 years old. So I asked him, uh, how did it go for him uh, with girls after his amputation? Because uh, I was really, really worried about that. Like truly, truly worried about it. And he said, I don't know about you, but uh, is it the feet you used to, to fuck them with? He said. <laughs> and I said, no, no, it isn't. And he said, okay, it's going to be fine for you as well. <laughs> And that was like hundred kilos just ran off my shoulders, and I could start. I started to breathe again, and I was like, "Oof, it's gonna be okay." Um, mm-hmm. So then I just started uh, focusing about uh, recovery, physical recovery. Yeah. Nice. It's interesting that the psychological stuff comes before the phys- the physical stuff, and the fact that you've also said that the the physical things and the physical challenge here is is easier than the psychological stuff. Yeah. Like the physical stuff for me is it's, it's really easy because I've always been, uh, I've always been in sports. I've, uh, I, uh, I did cross country till I was 18 and, uh, really pushed cross, uh, cross country skiing. I really wanted to be good at that. So, uh, training and, uh, it's like, it's a normal, it's a normal thing for me. It's, uh, it's a, it's just a part of my day. So that comes really easy for me. Uh, but the psychological thing is, is, uh, that's a bigger challenge. Yeah. When did you decide that you're going to get back into, uh, into that level of adventure sport that you were doing before? Uh, I decided, uh, when I was, uh, when I was hospitalized at uh, uh, Tagland, uh, just a week, two weeks after after um, uh, the amputation, I set four goals, and that was I should I would finish my skydiving license because I had to do two more jumps. Uh, I I would uh, fly from uh, speed riding from uh, Luan again, the the place where I had my crash. Uh, top 10 in the, the Norwegian uh, championships in free riding and uh, to climb uh, Store Skagastilstind uh, again, uh, Mount, uh, Norwegian, uh, Norway's third highest mountain. So already then, right after the amputation, I decided that I was going back to the, uh, the activities I did before and uh, the goals uh, top ten in the Nora. If I knew if I was if I was if I got to uh, get the top uh, top ten in the Norwegian Championships again and climb 
Stora skagasystem. I was I was back where I was before the accident. I was at the same level. Um, so that meant I was I had become myself again. So that was really important for me. Those four goals, and they kept me kept me going. Yeah. How like talking about progressing to those goals? What was that like? Uh, you had to. <laughs> the first thing I had to do was to gain weight uh, and to get. Uh, rid of my all my uh, all the pains, uh, the phantom pains. Mm-hmm. They were really bad. Uh, so I started eating, eating a lot. Um, so we talked to the the kitchen ladies at the rehabilitation center. So I got special food. Um, so I gained twenty five kilos in two or three months. <laughs> Good effort. Uh, that's, I, that's not easy. <laughs> And I had uh, physiotherapy once a day, Monday to Friday. Uh, and I trained one to two times uh, on myself at the evenings. So I had two to three um, training sessions uh, each every day. Um, I used a lot of time uh, um, adjusting uh, my prosthesis to get them as good as possible. Uh, so I invested a lot of time in uh, getting back on my feet. Um, so when I started walking again, uh, I took my first steps alone without crutches, without uh, everything, uh, the 3rd of August. Uh, and the 10th of September, I ran a mountain race home in uh, Volda. So uh, th- then I knew I was back in uh, back in the mountains. I, uh, what distance was that race? Uh, the altitude was uh, thousand uh, thousand meters uh, from zero to thousand. Um, so I got uh, second last. There were uh, I beat a lady who was like sixty. Uh, so uh, I don't think I had passed the drug test because I was still uh, on on heavy medication. <laughs> but yeah. So in uh, September that year. Um, uh, I did the two last skydives of my license. Uh, and in October, I flew from Luan with Speedrider again. What's that like? Because that's quite the way to get back into it. Yeah, because that's a cliche as well, like to get back on the horse. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Luan uh, was really booming on Instagram that uh, summer. So... Every time I was checking my phone, I got Luan smashed in my face. And that was like, uh, yeah, uh, a bad reminder of what had happened every time I was checking my phone. So I didn't want Luan to be uh, like a ghost. So I just had to do it. I just had to get back there and get it out of my life, get it out of the system. So to fly from Luan again, was that was truly important to just put everything behind me. Yeah. And what's that? That was your first flight afterwards, right? Yeah. So I just went to Luan and just yeah. flew it. Yeah. And what's going through your mind as you're preparing to, to take off? You're just really focused. Uh, I can't remember being very scared because I'd done it so many times before. Uh, I think I had like 50 or 60, 70 flights from Luan. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 40, 50 uh, I, don't, I don't remember exactly but yeah, a lot of flights 
so I knew the place very well. Uh, and I was so focused. So, yeah, I didn't think much of it. Uh, of course, I was a bit nervous, and but I, I wasn't scared. No, I wasn't. I'm guessing you weren't scared, but your family were probably quite concerned. Yeah, um, they didn't know. They didn't know I was there yeah, until after. Best way. Um, yeah, my mom was my mom was truly pissed. She was really angry with me after I did it. Mm-hmm. Understandably, but uh, it was just something I uh, I had to do, and uh, she uh, she understands it now as well. Yeah. I just think it was yeah, a shock I for think... her that uh, all that uh, I've been through and all that uh, we as a family have been through because of uh, my accident in Luan that I still wanted to to put myself in uh, in danger uh, again. But uh, yeah, it, uh, it but it's what makes ruined. you you by the sounds of it. It's mm. like the the danger that we spoke about at the beginning of this. It's almost like there's that. Um, essential part of you yeah it's like I wouldn't say I'm addicted to danger uh, Mm -hmm. but danger is uh, comes as a part of as a consequence of what I like to do so then you have to deal with the danger as good as possible to Mm -hmm. to get out of it uh, without any any issues Got you. What's it like? They, I, the thing I think about as well is like ski touring with a prosthesis. Um, the ankle articulates a lot and does a lot of work. Um, how do you like? Where do you even start with that process? Uh, yeah, that was uh, that. Uh, that was the main issue when it came to like the, the practical parts of prosthesis to. To get uh, a touring foot to walk uh, to work, because there are no uh, uh, rando uh, prosthesis on the market, so we have we had to uh, develop our own. Uh, so the first thing I did was I tried uh, like a normal prosthesis in a normal ski foot, but that was really shit. I couldn't. Yeah, that was really bad. So that was a that was a hard blow for me because I thought, oh, is this the level I'm going to ski on now? Because it was truly terrible. Um, but then I tried uh, an alpine foot as that went straight into the binding, and then that one uh, worked really well in in the pist with uh, with normal bindings. Uh, so what we did, we took a, a touring boot uh, and cut off the sole and bolted it to um to the to the ski foot and that worked really well uh and that what is what i'm uh, i'm using today okay so the prosthesis has like i'm guessing the ability for the, the ankle joint or the equivalent of to articulate and move no you you don't have uh, yeah you have like uh, dorsal and plantar flexion mm-hmm. um it's uh it's like um um, suspension on a bicycle. Okay. Yeah. So it's air pressure that. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so you can I pump it up as hard as I want the flex to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but oh, so uh, you've got almost like the flex in your boot, almost like you've got that preloaded. 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, but the first foot I had was a carbon foot. So then it was just the uh, suspension of the carbon. Yeah. Uh, but now I use uh, air pressure and it works a lot better. Yeah. So I've seen videos of you shredding hard and I shred and it's super impressive. What's like, what's your, um, yeah, what was the the skiing process like afterwards? What was it like getting back out into skiing some powder? Uh, the ski powder at the beginning was really, really hard because I the prosthesis were wasn't working. So I invested a lot of time in developing and uh, adjusting um, the prosthesis to to be as good as it, uh, as it is now. Mm-hmm. And that took a lot of time. But I'm truly blessed with uh, the engineers that have been working with me, uh, Lina and uh, Vega especially. They've been truly amazing. Um, so I have a lot, a lot to, uh, to thank them for. Um, if it hasn't been for if it hadn't been for them, I, I yeah, I don't know where I've been. But I've uh, I've definitely not been ski- been skiing what I've or I've skied the last couple of years. Um, yeah. So it was a, uh, a long process to, uh, to develop, but, um, yeah, mm-hmm. if you put your, if you put work in, into it, it, um, usually gets good. Yeah. You said, I think it was about 20 minutes ago or so that there's the cliche of when one door closes another opens since the accident, what, what doors have opened for you? <laughs> yeah. After accident, I got uh, sponsored by Salomon. So I've been with them for five years. So that's been uh, been really nice. Um, they've been a truly good supporter and made it able made it to be able for me to 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 ski and uh, at the level I I do. Um, and uh, I got to make start making a documentary with uh, Matthias Miklebust and the Field Productions. Uh, about life and skiing um, and I've got so many opportunities and invited to so many events that I I guess I wouldn't have been if uh, I wouldn't have been if if it wasn't for my amputation so I've been asked many times if uh, if I could choose to um, go back and uh, not been in the accident and uh, not know what what that, uh, has happened the last five years or if I would have gone through it uh, one more time. And uh, I can't answer that question because it's so hard because uh, there's so many good things that have, has happened to me because of because of my amputation and my accident. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I can only imagine that there's the, the lessons you've been taught. So I coach a lot of I call them adventurepreneurs, right? So business owners who go out and do cool shit with their free time. And through any hardship that they encounter, whether that is their business not doing as well or injury or whatever's going on or family situations, the key is acceptance. That's like, can you accept the situation as it is? And I'm sure throughout times in this journey, you've been at points where you're like, fuck this, I wish it wasn't the case. But the thing that you're, talking about now is acceptance of this and a kind of um an understanding that you are where you are and i think that that really shows in the fact that you are 
um, working with this and finding ways to still do the things that are important to you despite the challenges that you have? Yeah, I think what you said there is truly important, acceptance. And I, I found that acceptance really early because of the way the uh, uh, the surgeon uh, uh, treated me. Uh, but what I couldn't accept was not being able to do what I did before. That I couldn't accept. So then I just had to put down the work and... Uh, put those hours into training and developing the prostheses and, and all that stuff. Cause yeah, I couldn't accept it. It, uh, that wasn't an option. Is there anything that you've learned through this journey that you think would be a useful thing to pass on to other people who haven't had this experience? The importance of, um the relations to those around you uh, it's one thing to do everything on your own but it's so much easier if you have people backing you and uh, to get people to back you you also got to back them and to be there for them uh, uh, I think that's the most important lesson that I learned because um, uh, and like, if you want something, you have to work for it. Nothing comes for free. That's the, uh, it's, uh, that's, that's kind of, uh, a nice thing as well, I guess that, cause that means that if you put the work in, you can get as good as you want almost, mm. um, you just have to work for it. And, uh, yeah, if you set your uh, goals very high, you have to work very high, hard to get there. But if you do, it's possible. Um, that's kind of a cliche as well, but, uh, uh, yeah. So I'm never going to be the world's best, obviously, because of my, uh, my physical challenges, but I can be, I can be as good as I want, uh, want to be in terms of, I can do, I can do, uh, the hiking, I can do the skiing. I can, uh, uh walk to, uh, to my job. I can, um, I can go out uh, clubbing. I can do. I can do what I want to do. So uh, to put the work in, that's truly that's a really important. Nice. And I, I don't think you would have got to that point without the character that you have and that you show. I think there's um, there's many people that have been put in similar situations and not had the response that you have. And I think that your response and your ability to adapt is a testament to who you are as an individual, like having known you for all of an hour and three minutes now. Um, the feeling that I get from you is someone who, like I said, accepts, but also has an incredible amount of willpower and discipline, but also um, emotional understanding too. So I think that's something you can really, um, yeah, be... I, I hesitate to say proud of yourself for, but it's a, it's a very impressive thing to witness in someone is, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I think the key, uh, the key of success for me was, uh, the mastery because I set I set really high goals and the people told me, uh, I could just forget it. They weren't realistic. Uh, but they were like 
I didn't think much of those goals because I always thought of the small goals right ahead. Like tomorrow, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my my ten curls uh, and my 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 ten legs extensions in my bed. That's my that's my next goal. That's that that was really small goals. So for every small goal that I managed, I got a, a small feeling of mastery. Mm. And when you just manage to do like small goals all the way. Uh, you just keep on uh, moving forward. But if you set your bar really high and you only look at the end goal, you're not going to succeed because uh, you will always fail because you aren't at that place yet. So just to to set those small, easy goals that is uh, so hard that you feel a kind of, uh, that if you get a sense of mastery when you, when you accomplish them, but also so easy that you're with... Uh, 99% certainty is able to uh, to, to manage them. I yeah. think that's really important. I love that. And I think that's some something that people can take and apply to their life immediately, no matter what they're working on. It's that immediate goal in front of you. So talking about goals and visions and big challenges, what's next for you? What, what have you got your eyes on? Yeah, uh, so um, my next goal is to... Um, to keep on skiing and uh, my big dream is to to go abroad and ski and filming with uh, with the big guys the professional ones to ski with them and learn from them is is a truly big dream of mine uh, so uh, that's my that's my next goal um so uh, yeah sweet sweet well that's a great place to wrap up um where can people follow your journey and find out more about you. Yeah, I'm at uh, Instagram, uh, Marius Röstra. Uh, We're going to have so, to spell that for most English speakers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so B-E-R-N-T and then you can <laughs> M-A-R-I-U-S, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and is there anything else on that Instagram handle? No, I guess uh, that's the... That's the place I, I'm at. Perfect. That's where you can follow me. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate your time. And um, yeah, and this conversation. I've gained a huge amount from this. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, I had to apologize for my English. Uh, it's a bit okay. easier to uh, to get the words out and uh, make sense of it all in Norwegian. But uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully okay. the the listeners understand most of it. Well, you nailed it. And like I said in our Instagram exchange, I think we got a lot further than we would have done if we we're doing it in Norwegian because you <laughs> just had to speak for an hour by yourself, dude. <laughs> so thank you, man. Nice, nice.